Beyond Belief Sobriety is a podcast and community for people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Hello, thank you for spending a little of your time today listening to this episode. I hope it's a good experience for you and that it adds a little extra to your stockpile of recovery capital. Today, my guest is Maggie Jensen, who is an alternative recovery coach and harm reduction specialist. She owns and operates Magnify Progressive Wellness, which is focused on being a one-stop shop for wellness with an emphasis on mental health. I think she's incredibly talented as a communicator. And if you check out her videos on YouTube and Instagram, I think you'll agree. But before we get started, I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Soberlink. We need to talk about alcohol recovery in the workplace. Talking about sobriety and proving it to your employer can be so difficult. And our friends at Soberlink want to help. If you need a reliable way to present documented proof of sobriety to a boss or loved one, Soberlink can help. Soberlink is a high-tech portable breathalyzer system that uses facial recognition technology to verify identity, has unique sensors to ensure that no other air sources are being used, and sends results directly to your specified contacts so there's no questioning whether or not you took the test and whether or not you altered the reporting. This is why Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is considered the gold standard. Being in recovery from alcohol does not define the future of your career. Let Soberlink help. Learn more about Soberlink and request an exclusive $50 off promo code by visiting Soberlink.com slash BBS. And now, episode 285, Magnifying Maggie. Just want to go ahead and dive in the deep end of the pool here and, and take it back in time because I feel there's a lot of my story that is triggering and I want to kind of... I, I, First of all, foreshadow that for anybody that's going through a hard time right now. Uh, this might be an episode to come back to for topics of obviously addiction, but suicide, mental health, and various different things like that trauma. Uh, to go back, though, my life looked really pretty promising to start. My family was all very uh, traditional Midwestern family. My dad was enlisted in the military, Fort Riley, Kansas. My mom was a school teacher. Uh, They met there and they got married. My mom already had one son from her previous marriage and she had uh, Eric, my brother, and then I two years later. And The life, like I said, looked pretty normal, military dad, teacher, mom, and life was simple. And my dad started to uh, get deployed more and more. He was a a military uh, Spanish linguist for the military. So he was getting deployed. And this, of course, was before social media. This was back early 90s, uh, before social media, before even the ability to text or call very often with deployments was available. So as my dad was deployed more often, my mom started to seek out different ways to spend her time. Unfortunately, I look back and I think that she didn't have anything to really build an identity around other than motherhood. And, and she felt lonely in that. And uh, around age five is when I started to feel that disconnect from her. And it was by age six that I was being described to what alcoholism was. Um by age seven, my aunt was telling me uh, that my mother had a disease, a permanent disease of addiction. And that's when I was 
really, uh, I guess, indoctrinated to the lifestyle and the teachings of AA, I would actually go with her to AA meetings. I would go to Al-Anon. I would go to all of these children's support groups, but that were still working in tandem with the 12 steps. Uh, and in my young mind, I think I was gifted with this intuitive faculty that was really strong. I just, it didn't make sense to me. I always questioned how this was a disease when it started from basically looking for an escape and I could pick up on that as a kid. Uh, so I studied everything I could get my hands on to help my mom. I joke that I've been studying addiction since before I was 10. Uh, and, and of course it wasn't me going to the library and checking out books on addiction, but it was studying any kind of material I could from AA and those Al-Anon groups. And I was always questioning it, always trying to get my mom involved in new things, but she was a very emotional angry drunk. Um, they ended up getting a divorce, my father and her, and he continued his deployment. So he didn't realize what was going on in our household. He didn't realize that the, the roles of children of alcoholics were being placed on us. And science shows that there's these different kind of roles that we will fill. The scapegoat, the clown, the golden star child, the enabler, the black sheep will all kind of develop these personality types to fit the roles within the household. And that's exactly what was happening. And uh, fortunately for me, I found myself as kind of the golden child where I was able to really dive into my curiosity. I was always very good in school. I loved making my teachers happy. I loved making any type of authority figure happy because I wasn't getting that from my own mom. Um, and then my brother, Eric, who was two years older than me, he fell into that enabler role. There was no father figure in the house. He was the middle child. He was at this weird age where he could uh, relate with my mom's issues and she, he protected her. And he protected me in times when she was too violent. And over time, that weighed on him to the point that um, he took his life when he was 14 and I was 12. And we were home alone together. It was honestly something out of the blue. Looking back, there's there was no note. There was no there was nothing. He always played that um, that facade. You know, he always played like everything was okay. And it was only six months later that I turned to alcohol, despite everything that I had learned and knew about it, and how much I hated it, and how much I despised alcohol that environmental conditioning was there. Do you, do you know how much, um, you know, my story is like, like that also involves a suicide. And so my mother committed suicide. So I was like, um, it was right after my 21st birthday and I was there, I witnessed it. I was there. She was an overdose. Yeah. I was there with her. Wow. And, um, a couple of weeks after her death, someone gave me a shot of whiskey as a way to kind of help me. And yeah. it set me on a path. That got me eventually where I'm at now. So I can I can so relate that 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 pain is is really a sharp, deep pain. Anyway, I just want to acknowledge that and and let you know that I've I've experienced that as well. Thank you for sharing that, John. And and I think that might be why our souls were so drawn to each other. It seems like when people go through that same situation, then we can connect on that level. And I thank you for sharing that. It it is it's this funny thing that it was a situation similar of my friends saying, well, I know that adults use this to cope. And then when they said that to me, it was like this light bulb of, oh, well, my mom uses it to cope. 
And there was no red flag of like, well, look what your mom is now. It was just, I need something to make me feel better. And I remember the first words out of my mouth as soon as I took that drink and felt the buzz was, wow, I, I see why my mom is an alcoholic. Because it was that first sense of warmth that I got in so long. And it's something that I realize now that we're not taught that we can provide that warmth for ourselves that we don't have to look for external circumstances to do that. But 13 year old mind, I, I didn't know. And uh, I used alcohol to escape the pain and the guilt that I had from, you know, I was home alone with him. Why didn't I do anything different? When I found him, he was still alive. I could have done something different. All of these things I kept playing over and over in my head. And my mom's alcoholism got even worse afterwards it got to the point that when every time she drank, she would say something to the effect of, I wish you were the one that died. I wish that if anybody was taken from me, it was you. Why, what were you doing when you were home alone with him? Why weren't you there for him? Why didn't you call 911 faster? And fortunately, my dad obviously became aware of everything that was going on at that point. He was able to come off of deployments and have me move in with him. And from then on, it was this stark contrast of my mother focused solely on herself and her own pain that she basically smited my oldest brother and I out of her life. Whereas my dad, I never, in hindsight, I never remember a day where he shut me out because he was hurting so bad. I never remember him needing to come to me for comfort. He was the one that opened that door and that connection. So the reason I count myself as successful now is all of the things that I got from my dad and kind of the things that I was shown not what not to do from my mother. And I have to think, you know, as angry as I was about the whole situation and being put on this earth with that type of mom, hey, you know what? I learned some things. And that blueprint I saw from her life, my life started to unravel the same exact way. And that's what caused me to buck up finally 15 years into my addiction and say, wow, my life, like literally it's the same track record. I'm multiple DUIs. I've dropped out of college. Like all of these things that my mom was, ha was happening for her started to happen for me. And if I hadn't seen that result for her, I don't know if I would have had the wherewithal to say, ooh, I'm heading down a dangerous track. And so it was, you know, like I said, 15 years, alcohol was always my favorite. I was introduced to other things, but it was always alcohol that I came back to. Um, I was a very hard drinker. I didn't seem to have a low tolerance whatsoever. I could drink hard alcohol. So I thought I was really cool. And, you know, 10 years pass, you get into your mid twenties. It, uh, it's not as cool anymore to be a 25 year old stumbling drunk. It's not as cool anymore to be 28, nearing your 30s, and be going to the bars every night. And on top of that, I had found my perfect husband, and he was a very successful um, military officer, and I needed to be able to be in control. Um, and throughout all of these trials and tribulations where I wasn't necessarily accounting alcohol as the issue, uh, it was the depression, it was the fact that life hurts, and that I was... I was given all of these negative circumstances. That was my mentality. So I reacted with alcohol. It's never alcohol's problem. And then I started to see, okay, I need to take time away and I need to be serious about it. And I read a book. Um, 
by Bex Weller, and it's called, and I always get it wrong, it's either Happier Hour or Happiest Hour. And she described um, what it would be like to take a 100-day alcohol vacation. For me, it was too scary to think life completely sans alcohol forever. So I just wanted to get my toes wet. And this was um, beginning of 2020, actually. And I had had a stream of very embarrassing events leading up to that. Um, and to kind of backtrack, I guess, in 2018, the end of 2018, my dad, who had been, you know, that rock for me um, and the most unconditionally loving person in my life, he uh, passed away in a motorcycle accident. And so now I was drinking for Eric's death, for my detachment from my mom, and the one person in this world that understood me was taken in a tragic motorcycle accident. That was my mentality. So 2019, boy, was it ugly. A lot of it I actually don't even remember. Uh, so 2020 was when I said, I need to do something different. I need to try something different. And all of the things that I had attempted with AA and, and even reintegrating those things that I had learned in childhood, they never really stuck. They made me more obsessed with drinking. So I said, I'm going to do something that takes my mind off of the alcohol. After I read that book from Bex Weller, I realized it was helpful, but it was still having me relating everything back to drinking. And every time I thought about that, there was some sort of depressing idea that came with it, which locked me in a depressed state. And no person can take intelligent, positive action if they're locked in that negative state. And so I said, huh, well, what have I been putting off? What have I not done for myself? Well, there's a lot. Before I gave up on all of my dreams, I really loved fitness. And I kind of like tuned in to like, what did little Maggie love? Well, I loved activity. I loved working out. At that time, it was like sports, athletics, play. Um, I loved reading. I loved studying. I also loved public speaking. Um, so these things I started to say, well, how can I just incorporate these in my day? And instead of thinking, I'm going to have to get through this day without alcohol, I was thinking, what kind of fun thing can I add in? And it just seemed as if all of the sudden I was going for, first it was only maybe eight hours without thinking about alcohol. I'd be like, wow, I just went half the day. And then it was a full day without thinking about it. And it was as if little by little, all of those binds were just breaking off of me. The chains were breaking away. And I was realizing that I was building an identity that had nothing to do with alcohol. And that's one thing that I was drawn to all of your um, interviews about is because you do you talk about identity. And I don't think a lot of people understand that when we're locked into negative drinking behavior, that's an identity. That's a belief we have about ourselves. That's a belief that we have no power. Oh, I'm powerless. That's a belief that we have that we need that to feel better. I believed that I was only fun, that I was only comfortable, that I was only soothed from my pain if I had alcohol. And I was breaking those beliefs and saying, oh, no, I can feel good doing this. I can feel good doing that. I feel soothed doing this. I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, you. no, I'm, I'm just uh, I'm, I'm amazed that you you learned early on what I have just recently learned. And that is the importance of thinking about what do you want with your recovery? What do you want in sobriety? 
and looking back at your life and the things that you loved and that you enjoyed, those, those are the things that you want to recover. You know, if this is recovery, these are the things that you want to recover. And focusing on that is so much more positive and empowering and hopeful than what I was taught, which was, right. <laughs> which, which was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a drunk forever and it's either going to be death or prison. So I better not drink. And you mentioned something in one of your videos, which is so true, especially early on. If a person goes to AA, you're really encouraged by a lot of sponsors to not focus on anything, but not drinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What a mistake. Our brain psychologically does not understand. Don't do that. If you think about it, if I say to you, John, don't think about cookies. <laughs> I'm gonna don't I'm gonna think about cookies, cookies. all day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally the image that I get in my head is a cookie with like the red circle around it and the and the cross. But that still means that I'm thinking about the cookie and I'm relating it relating things. Oh, well, I can't do that because I can't have the cookie. The same thing goes with alcohol. And when we paint it as a target to avoid recovery, isn't about shaming yourself into avoiding and trying to manipulate and control external circumstances. It's about, like you said, recovering the things that you love so much so that that external circumstance doesn't have the power over you. Like you once believed. And I do believe, I actually remember specific sober coaches, sobriety uh, mentors through AA that my mom had that would tell her, don't set any goals outside of sobriety. They would tell her, don't talk to anybody that you were friends with in your addiction. How scary is that for somebody to imagine? And what does that teach us? That teaches us that other people control us, not that we can control ourselves. And so I really saw through my own uh, change of behavior, little experimentation during quarantine, uh, was that the more I placed that focus on what I can do, the more I realized that alcohol is like, it doesn't have this power. It's not up. It's not up on the pedestal, but it's also not down in the pits because either way you hold it, it's going to have power over you. Andrew Carnegie said, any idea, whether feared or revered. So up in the, up on the pedestal or down in the pits, any idea feared or revered, if held in the mind and emphasized will begin to clothe itself in the most convenient physical form available. In my mind, when I read that, it was towards the end of 2020, as I had already put in these really positive behavior changes, I realized that that success came from the idea of, I no longer fear alcohol, but I know that I'm powerful over it and I'm powerful over my own behavior. That changed my entire reality. That changed my interactions with every single person in my life, changed my attitude towards every single activity that I took part in because I realized if I fear this, it's going to turn out bad. But if I just see it for what it is and I expect the best out of whatever I can, 
and it's going to turn out really well. If I revere it, then that can actually be my reality. And we can definitely get really mindsetty. I loved studying how like these thoughts actually affect our bodies physiologically to move into action. And that's really where I saw the main connection for my success was getting out of that rumination state of shame, guilt, and getting into this empowered state of just focus forward. Um, even if you mess up, what can you learn from it? Don't give it power and just move forward with faith uh, that you're going to be confident and that you're going to be able to achieve it. What I also um, liked about the videos that you've done and, and the message that you give is you correctly identify um, this thing, alcohol use disorder, as lying on a spectrum. And that you know, we, we, we've been conditioned, I say we as society as a whole, has been kind of conditioned to see it as just one thing, one disease that everybody must follow a certain, you know, path to recover from it. But that's not really true at all. It, it, it does fall on a spectrum from one end to the next. And not everybody has to have complete abstinence. And, and some do and some don't. <laughs> and absolutely. And I find that um, refreshing that because it's the truth and there's science behind it. Absolutely. I am into anything that's backed by science. I want numbers. I think our generation, our society now is very information hungry. And I do feel like the traditional recovery process, protocols, 12 steps, AA, that's all almost a hundred years old. And, and the science is showing that spectrum and we can get into the stages if, if that would, you know, be something you'd like to open up about. Um, but that spectrum allows us to see that, like you said, there's different needs for every person there, but it mainly, it really highlights why one traditional approach that is mainstream has not worked. We look at the numbers and studies say, yeah, AA is the best because that's what's out there. That's what's so that's what's highly mandated and mainstream. But what if there was something for people in stage one, stage two and stage three so that they don't get to stage four? Um, and I, I think it's really important to pay attention to the data. Yeah. You know, we're told that, you know, you've got to hit bottom. If you're going to get better, you've got to hit bottom. And the problem with that, when you're like me, I was like 25 years old and uh, at my bottom was, I guess I didn't have anything. I was tired of getting thrown in jail, but you know, I, I didn't physically have the issues that a lot of the older people had in my, in the groups that I was in, you know, and, and it took all, all these years later to say, well, I was in a different area on, on that. I'm, I'm lucky that I got in when I did at the age that I did, but, um, yeah, I, I was being I was being lumped in together with the the people on the other end. And I find it encouraging now that there are more people who are recognizing that that they that they that they can um reevaluate their relationship with alcohol, regardless of what's going on in their lives, that it might not be something that's healthy for them. And there's more of a curiosity about what would my life be like without alcohol or if I could moderate my and reduce my alcohol consumption, what would my life be like? And 
I just find that so promising that Pete, that that is happening now. It wasn't happening 20 or 30 years ago. No, I think it, I think the alcohol industry is panicking a little bit because we are waking up to the effects of alcohol on not just the physical level um, or like the professional or legal level, um, but also mental health and um, energy, things like that. So, you know, what I say is you don't just wake up an alcoholic. You don't just wake up at that severe end of the spectrum. We had to practice drinking for a long time to get there. So like you said, if there was a moment, if I may use the word intervention, um, to intervene when those problems were first starting, just when you had more control, when you had more um, enthusiasm and confidence in yourself to say, oh, mm, maybe I could, oh, maybe that is a red flag of of stage one or stage two. And and I don't want to let it get any further. So where are some tactics that I can, or some strategies that I can can take and learn from so that I don't allow this to progress? And looking at it without the stigma, but rather understanding that a lot of the people that you think are drinking normally and healthfully are probably only presenting that and you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. So just do what you can for you to improve your relationship with it. And for a lot of people, I find that when they are curious and they have the right approach, they have the right steps, they might say initially, oh, I'm, I could never go sober. I could never do that for life. Why well, I don't know. And like you said, they just, they just can't imagine it. Um, but once they kind of get that taste and they get some wins under their belt and they start to be reinvigorated, like I said, from those like childhood passions and hobbies that we gave up, then they start to say, you know what, life is actually really fun without this. And I have clients all the time that will come in and they say, no, I could never. And then after six weeks, eight weeks working together, they're like, I don't, I just don't want to drink. I went to an event last night and it just didn't sound appetizing. And I think it's all about um, just experimenting with life and your passions without necessarily putting that stamp on it of, I have to quit forever. Just try it out and see what you decide, you know, that gives you that freedom, but also the permission to ooh, relax about not having to decide right now. <laughs> that's where I think that you are. I, I think that that's where you're uniquely positioned. I think to help people from um, other recovery coaches that I've seen is, is understanding, understanding that. And that's why I said like the 19 year old me needed to hear that. And I know that there are there are people in the beginning stages of having beginning to have problems with alcohol who would really benefit from that. There's no reason that it has to get out get out of hand. Mm-hmm, exactly. And I think you hit the nail on the head as far as um, just our society being conditioned to see it so black and white. The people who are in stage one unknowingly or even in stage two. Um, they look at the people of stage four and they say, well, I'm not like them. So why would I need the same thing? And you don't, unfortunately, mainstream only offers one. So those people having a place, having a connection and resonating with a message of like, you don't have to quit, but Hey, maybe you'll want to one day. Um, and I appreciate that because honestly, 
I'm sure you can imagine the type of feedback that I've gotten from some um, communities of folks. Yes, and I, I, I would expect um, probably getting some of that too. But the fact of the matter is, if you really want to help somebody, you got to meet them where they are. And you got to understand that not everybody needs the same thing. Um, and I, I didn't need at 25 what some other guy needed when he was 55, you know, who'd been drinking much longer than me. But that's, you know, that I, I just, I just believe that. And what is encouraging though, what I will tell you from my community and the people that listen to this podcast, I hear a lot more often now that, yeah, I'm all behind harm reduction. Who wouldn't be? Good. Who, Good. I mean, you got to keep people alive, right? I mean, otherwise there's, there's no chance yes. <laughs> you got to give people mm -hmm. hope. And I, th and I exactly. think that that's what, I think that that's what harm reduction does. If you want to, and you, and you, I love this because in your videos, you said harm reduction is another word for moderation, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and if you go to a doctor, they're going to say harm reduction is valuable. Harm reduction saves lives because it is moderation. It's saying, okay, and even if we're looking at somebody maybe on that very uh, severe end of AUD spectrum, alcohol use disorder spectrum, you'd say, well, they're perhaps drinking, I'll take a page out of my own book, uh, maybe 10 ounces of hard liquor a day. Harm reduction would be next week, take it down to nine. Then next week, take it down to eight. Is that full sobriety? Obviously not. So it doesn't necessarily appease the people that believe in that being the only method. But is that healthy for them? If they can get on average from 10 hard drinks a day to five or four or three, a doctor is going to say thumbs up. Would it be best if that person could eventually not need to drink ever again or maybe once a month, once a week? Go yeah, for sure. But guess what? Three is still better than 10. So our society is very conditioned. You see this in nutrition. You see this in workout. You see this in everywhere that everybody is so conditioned that if you can't do it all, don't do anything. Right. And it's not like that. Even with drinking, if you can just cut back a little bit, you're going to start to feel differences in your body. You're going to start feeling differences in your energy levels for your day. So that you're able to maybe focus a little bit more on what's going to bring you happiness. What have you been avoiding that's causing you anxiety and, and things like that on a granular level that you can go ahead and maybe take on with confidence now. And every day that you cut back one, guess how, what that does for your confidence. If you're stuck in that rut of 10 a day and you get down to nine and eight, you're going to be soaring. So over time, harm reduction leads to... What I've seen with my clients, at least, it leads to almost 100% abstinence, if not entire. Um, it's just a process. And so interesting, too. Uh, uh, you might, you're probably familiar with the Sinclair method that people use, where you will take naltrexone and then drink normally. A large percentage of the people that do that go on to just not drink at all. Some don't, but some of them don't decide not to drink at all. They just, you know, which I find so amazing. And But you could be, some people could be against that, thinking that that's not right but it's helping people and they're getting sober. Also, sometimes thinking about um, recovery. I, I took this class to become a peer support specialist and they were talking about what recovery is and nowhere does it mention sober. Honestly, it doesn't. It talks about uh, recovery being a process of change. 
And I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot. And it talks about a process of change where you, you're striving to be your better self or whatever. And I've been thinking about this a lot. And I'm, I'm just kind of coming to realize that's what life is, basically. And I'm wondering, you know, if maybe I could one day just drop the word, drop this phrase of being in recovery and just saying, you know, yeah, I'm a living person who wants to get, who wants to improve, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's actually like a very interesting little brainchild that I'm playing with right now. And it came from like seeing my mom's identity built around, you know, in the time that she was addicted, it was, I'm an addict. And then in the time that she was, working the steps and actually getting coins and all of that jazz. Um, her identity was, I am sober Robin. <laughs> right, exactly. I am going to AA every day. And it's like, okay, for me, that feels like I'm still giving just as much energy to the illness. I wanted it to be like you said, like just, a, I'm a freaking human being <laughs> and I just live and I just have all of these fascinations and hobbies and interests. I didn't want it to be about alcohol. So I thought like, well, how can I, instead of thinking about myself being in recovery for life or trying to aim for sobriety, what is it to be recovered? And then what is sobriety without that word? Like what's the opposite of addiction without saying sobriety? And for me, there's a lot of, there's books on this. Johan Hari says that it's connection. I agree with that. Um, but for me, the opposite of addiction is freedom and health. When I'm focused on my freedom to create whatever I want, the magnify method, this program, um, when I'm focused on my health, I'm thinking in terms of developing both of those aspects. Then when the idea of drinking comes in, it's like, meh. That's not adding to these buckets over here that I love, this identity that's not sober or addicted. It's free and, and powerful and driven and healthy. I'm not even giving the other identity any power anymore. It's like the old me. It was a part of my life that I could able, like, actually, like, cut out and I'm reclaiming. And, and instead of thinking living in recovery, I'm recovered. I'm a human. I'm normal. Um, and I think that's a really powerful place to be so that you're not locking yourself into feeling ashamed about having to be in recovery. I think some people still feel that a lot of people can wear it as a badge of honor and be confident with it. But other people, I can tell it weighs it on does. them like they're embarrassed. I've had that. I've had people tell me I don't want to be in recovery. It just sounds like I'm always mm -hmm. sick. Mm hmm. When you study what happens to the body, when you tell yourself you're sick, and I'll try not to get too deep here because I could talk hours about this, but um, when talking about identity, when talking about your beliefs about yourself, any idea that you believe about yourself is going to manifest. If you believe that, um, let's say there's a paradigm, a, a program built into you from childhood that you are a, uh, that you don't like to study, that you're a poor student, your attitude towards studying, your attitude towards yourself about studying is going to be very poor. You're not going to spend time doing it. You're going to get poor results off of anything that you have a bad attitude from. And it was as if I realized that every negative thing in my life that I was, that I was um, experiencing was coming back to some sort of program that I had about myself. 
that I had to make myself small, that I was powerless. Addiction is a disease. I'm only fun if I'm drinking. I can only be happy if I'm drinking. All of these things were leading me to make those decisions. And that's true for every single human being. If we tell ourselves that we're powerless, if we tell ourselves that we're clumsy, that we are just drunks, you said that earlier, I'm just a drunk. The more we tell ourselves that, the more we are going to embody that through our ego and through our behavior, because we believe it. If you've ever been mad and somebody comes up to you and they want you to laugh and they try to make you laugh, even if it's funny, you're going to stay mad because that's your ego. It wants to perform what you believe right now. So I remember specific days before I was able to, you know, find my power where there was alcohol on a cart and I was having a bad day, but I made it all the way here. And I really want to drink, but I don't, I shouldn't drink, but I'm powerless. It's a disease. And that one little hook of a thought of a belief of my identity was what caused me to then cave into that drink. It wasn't anything other than just that thought and that belief about myself. Um, and identity, I think, just plays such a big part in that. And um, I think that any recovery path any type of AUD treatment, it needs to have a big focus on identity and who you believe you are and who you believe you're not. Oh, I'm not that type of person. I could never go without drinking for my entire life. Like all of these things, you're going to have to assess them. What your goal is, if your belief is contradictory to it, you're never going to get there. So would you like to talk about what the Magnify program is and, and why do you call it Magnify? And why, and why do you call it Magnify? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm a big lover of puns and any type of um, like play on words, any type of alliteration I can have. And so when I was um, creating the company, I had a bunch of different ideas and my sister-in-law and I were talking, she was like, well, it's almost like you're always just kind of giving your positive energy to help people um, to model that for your clients. So it's almost like you're, she was like, you're almost magnifying. Oh, I got you. And I was I like, like it. I was like, well, that's cute. But I also didn't want it to just be my name. So I was like, well, magnifying, like that sounds like magnify. And then I started to think about a magnifying glass and I thought, well, what does a magnifying glass do? Well, it helps us focus. A magnifying glass represents awareness, knowledge. Um, and I think that that's a really big area that we're lacking as far as anybody that wants to do better in their life. There's so much to learn about the power of your mind and your thoughts and your attitude. Um, and then also, if you think about a magnifying glass, when you put it under the sun, the sun's rays just make it so powerful, it turns to fire. So it's it was a metaphor really for like when you start to focus on the good things in life, you can light a fire under your own booty and get there. Um, and I just I really loved magnify Maggie. I liked the MM, but um, but I, I think that the program overall, I just wanted it to allow people to feel comfortable entering. First of all, we touched on this. A program has to meet a person where they are. For me, AA always felt uncomfortable. And I think you probably know this part, but it's it was uncomfortable for me because of my relationship with God after everything that had happened with Eric. And if I wasn't resonating with that, I was shut off to it. You know, you can't accept one portion of a program, but then ignore another part. 
And that's really what was happening for me. So I needed something that gave me that power without focusing it on God. Um, and I think a lot of other people do need that as well, obviously. Um, I know you're in agreement with that. So, you know, meeting people at their level to where, okay, it's, it's non-religious. There's no labels. I'm not going to make anybody claim. I actually don't want, you, even if you do say I'm an addict, we're going to work that belief out Good of for you. you. That belief, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That belief is what keeps you coming back to that behavior. Um, so we're going to, we work on, um, you know, not working with labels. I love smart recovery for that as well. Um, non-religious. It's also just such uh, what I intended for it to be such a physical program as well. And I know that you've had on, um, I forget, I'm sorry, Matt, I believe his name was, um, who had the kind of a, a fitness inspired program as well. Um, and I just saw not just necessarily working out to see your body differences, but the impact that physical exercise has on your mental health. For me, that became my new drug of like, oh, if I'm feeling sick or if I'm feeling like angry, let me go for a walk. Oh, I have like natural happy hormones in here that are going to make me feel good. What? So having that aspect added into it with nutrition, um, I believe that having nutrition goals, morning, mid-afternoon, lunchtime, dinner time. think about how much mental energy you go, you put towards that and you're not thinking about alcohol. Every time you make a meal that fits your needs, that's a win. That's a confidence booster. So it's nutrition and fitness. It's non-judgmental, no um, labels there. But then the most important aspect for me is the education. Uh, what really brought me the power for myself was learning about things like consciousness, this uh, stream of energy that's coming through that I can shape however I want that then changes the way my body feels and creates the behavior that I will actually take part in. So what that means is, you know, energy coming into our thoughts, it really just is. But if you're programmed to always make everything negative, every single thing that somebody says to you, you're going to interpret it as negative. That's what I was doing. I was always in defensive mode. I was always trying to react and be ready for, for bracing for failure uh, that's how I would shape that energy in my body. And then, so my attitude and my behavior was very negative, but if you can take that energy in and, and shape it to your desire and shape it with positivity and say, well, what, where's the opportunity here? How can I go after the next success, the next 1% progress? Uh, then that shapes how your body physically feels like energetic, um, excited. If you feel pain-free, if you feel really fatigued, if you feel really um, like you're always dealing with chronic issues like migraines, indigestion, that's all stemming originally from stress and thought. So the body is the instrument of the mind. If you don't feel good, it's because you're not thinking well. And I realized that that's how my drinking behavior was manifesting. I was just interpreting every single thing that came into my mind as negative. And I had to soothe that i had to drown that out to make myself feel normal but then my body wasn't feeling good so conscious awareness um our higher faculties our, our ability to shift our perspective on things i've had to do major perspective shifts to accept and actually find gratitude in eric's suicide 
And in my mom, we, talk, we talked about the gratitude that I found in my mom's addiction, um, the gratitude that I've found even for my father's death. Um, I don't know if had my father not passed away and things not gotten really bad in 2019, I don't know if I would have already been on a sober journey for quarantine. I fear what my life would have looked like had I not already started before the lockdowns. I don't know if you remember, I had to like just get off social media because everybody was posting about shots of whiskey at 10 a.m. on a Wednesday and stuff. So I, I just look back and I find so much gratitude. Obviously, I miss my dad, but the, the sequence of the way things happened, had that not happened, I don't know that I would have made that decision in January of 2020 to set me up to actually do the work that I did from March until the end of 2020 when things started to reopen. Um, so just looking, figuring out ways to shift your perspective on things so that you're not drinking to escape this pain anymore, this trauma. Um, that's what the magnify method really is all about. There's obviously lots of details I'm leaving out here. Um, but I would say I don't have a, I don't have a, a number of steps that I, put somebody through something that I notice on a therapy level on a, like a therapeutic professional level is that, um, the 12 steps and traditional recovery I worked in, inpatient facilities, even that use that modality, it's very protocol focused. Just put the people through the steps. If they mess up, just start them back over. Whereas I think that what's needed is to have a, yeah, a pillar or a, a curriculum of steps, a curriculum of pillars, but then shift them based on where the person is, how the person's goals look like, um, what happens along the way, say a lapse in sobriety, how can we shift things and offer encouragement and enthusiasm to move forward versus um, shame or guilt or things like that. So obviously the steps are all um, there, but they mold to the person versus making a person mold to the steps. If that makes yeah, sense. It does. That was really my goal. That's right. Yeah. I, well, the listeners to the audio podcast and the people who are anyone who's watching this on YouTube in the future, you got to check out her YouTube channel. I'm going to put links to this. You got to check out the YouTube channel. Thank you got to check out Instagram. And I still have not looked at the TikTok videos. But I'm gonna check those out too. But they're all that's okay. <laughs> they're all done really, really well, and you will learn so much. I learned a lot Thank from you. that. And uh, I really appreciate. It. I I just uh, I it's rare that I meet someone that I could identify with. I mean, we're so different in generation and everything else. But um, I also grew up in a military family. I li I live oh, in wow. Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, oh my yeah. gosh! I was just there too. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of lot of commonalities there. It took me a long time, many decades, before I learned what you've learned now. And but but you give me so much hope for the future of recovery because people are going to be finding you. Um, I think you're going to be very successful at what you do um, in coaching and helping and mentoring people. And I would really encourage anybody who's interested in a recovery coach to check you out. I think that, I think you got a good thing going there. 
Thank you so much, John. Oh, that just, I'm fighting back tears of joy. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And uh, to anybody out there listening, I really appreciate you obviously listening to John and then uh, visiting some of the resources that I can offer. And if anybody um, wants to chat, yeah, we're here for you. And, and thank you, John, for letting us talk, dive into all of this fun stuff. I know it's fun for me to talk about, and I appreciate I've enjoyed you it. offering this platform. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.